This is episode 11 with Taro Isokopla on Ancestral Health Radio. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Join me, your host, James Kevin Broderick, as we bridge the divide between modern technology and our inherent ancestral wisdom. Let's take a walk on the wild side. Did you know that some of the oldest living mushroom colonies are fairy rings growing around the famous Stonehenge ruins in England? The rings are so large that they can best be seen from airplanes. It's crazy, right? Well, be prepared to dive headfirst into Mycology 101 with Taro Isokalpala, founder of the popular shroom company Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic is a superfood company founded by Taro and his group of Finnish friends. It's based on their belief that health can be vastly improved through simple dietary tweaks. And the easiest way to do this is through mushrooms, the most scientifically studied and proven superfood. Four Sigmatic wants to popularize these medicinal mushrooms by incorporating them in popular products like coffee, tea, and hot cocoa. In today's episode, you'll learn why most medicinal mushroom products in North America technically don't contain mushrooms, why people on ketogenic diets shouldn't fear polysaccharides, i.e. complex sugars, the three tiers of mushroom identification and foraging tarot suggests we begin with, and much, much more. Also, be aware that tarot hooks the audience up with a 10% discount code at the end of this episode, so stay tuned. Taro Isakapala is the founder of Four Sigmatic, and he's on a mission to make medicinal mushrooms some of the world's most researched superfoods more accessible to everyone. Born in Finland to an agronomist father and nursing teacher mother, Taro grew up on a farm his family has owned since 1619. There, he's forged for mushrooms and other wild foods while learning about the natural food space at a very early age. Following his early education on the farm, Taro later completed a degree in chemistry and a certificate in plant-based nutrition from Cornell University. In 2006, he won a Finnish Innovation Award for discovering that the sought-after Japanese culinary Matsutake mushrooms also grow in Finland. Taro is a reputable source on superfoods, an expert on natural health, and has been a featured speaker at Summit Series, Wanderlust, and WME IMG. Thank you for being on Ancestral Health Radio. Taro, I'm very excited to have you on here. Mushrooms is a big passion of mine that I'm, I'm really starting to delve more into recently. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me on. I thought maybe what we could do is maybe just start off with a little bit of your history, just a little bit of your backstory as to how you began for Sigmatic and a little bit about where it's taken you. I know you've been kind of all over the place very recently. Maybe you want to tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So the cliff notes is that I grew up in Finland. Um, I'm a country boy. Um grew up on a farm that our family has had. Um, me and my brother are at least the 13th generation. Finland has been under uh, the Swedish and the Russian ruling, so we really don't know, but that that much we have record of. So grew up there foraging, farming, went to an environmental school that my great-great-granddad started or helped to found. Oh, and cool. um, yeah, first studied chemistry and then 
got into, I guess, my first venture was related to mushrooms. It was uh, by total fluke and accident found a rare mushroom in Finland that kind of caught me on into a one path that I didn't know even existed. It's funny how sometimes life chooses the path for yourself. Or sometimes I say that the, I work for mushrooms and the mushrooms chose me somehow hmm. that I'm not aware of. That's a little esoteric. But um, yeah, and then after that, I've lived eight countries in three continents. And the current passion of mine, which is related to the medicinal mushrooms, so we started this company called Four Sigmatic in 2012 and and with a bunch of group of friends from Finland and it's been a fun journey ever since and we can obviously go into detail with that but um, going into third world countries um, sourcing ingredients to the point of going all kinds of trade shows trying to convince that uh, drinking mushrooms is actually a smart idea which now is getting more and more popular but I can guarantee that in 2012 even 2015 people were looking at us like you're pretty insane so i know and you know what that surprises me too because i used to work in the natural food industry and medicinal mushrooms was just it was just the everyday everybody kind of knew that turkey tail lion's mane some of these other more medicinal mushrooms chaga for example just had amazing immunomodulating effects in the body so you know it's funny though when i i mention people about your product because i i love your product i use it in my bulletproof quote-unquote bulletproof coffee and when i mentioned to people that I'm drinking mushroom coffee. They give me the same strange look every single time. Do you <laughs> guys get epic. that a lot? Yeah, I mean, I've probably heard every possible mushroom fungi joke and psychedelic <laughs> reference. Know. And then, but definitely the concept of drinking mushrooms is radical to a lot of people. Whereas from an ancestral health point of view, it's almost the most ancient way. But unfortunately, even the people, a lot of people who are in the natural health and are familiar with, let's say, turkey tail or shiitake, they've been consuming them in capsules or in another kind of a supplement form. And they've kind of gone pretty far from its original way of, of a decoction, if you may, of cooking it. And so unless you're into foraging or somehow just very curious person, you've never thought like, well, how do they make these capsules and what's inside really? So a lot of people do think it's ground mushrooms, which is not so true in the case of polypores and medicinal mushrooms, but a lot of people think that it's ground mushrooms inside these capsules. And uh, that's a little unfortunate because these are not supplements. They are actually a food. They're, they're a very powerful food, but they're still a food. It's just that they're very bitter and because they're bitter, most people have just encapsulated them. But it still is somewhat radical. But it, I can definitely see a shift in the concept of drinking mushrooms. It's getting, and hopefully we've been, you know, been able to help with that process. But definitely catches people a little bit off guard when you say that you drink mushrooms. So what is the main difference between the capsulated mushroom products that you can buy on the shelf? I mean, maybe aside from the fact that we're drinking them rather than orally taking them, what are some of the biggest differences from the stuff that you can buy in a regular commercial health food store versus the stuff that we can buy from you? In theory, it doesn't have to be any difference. There is a clear difference though, but it doesn't have to be. You could encapsulate anything. You could encapsulate just, you can even buy a machine, by the way. If, if, if you're in a very serious detox, let's say a gut detox of some kind of worms or something, and you have to take the gnarliest herbs, you can buy a capsulation machine. And I understand that some people it's easier, but in theory, there shouldn't be any difference. 
Now, on a practical level, in North America, most medicinal mushroom products are not technically even mushrooms. They're mycelium. So from the fact of, um, and we can go into the detail to the vocabulary here, uh, but once you go foraging and you see mushrooms either on the ground or in this case on the trees, you generally see what is called a fruiting body, mm-hmm. which is like seeing an apple in an apple tree or, or anything like that. And from a cultivation purposes, a lot of these products are using the roots, so trying to eat the actual apple tree or the roots of the tree, which is a different part, and, and we can go into the chemistry of how are they different. Um, but there is a diff- so they usually sell the mycelium, which is grown on grains, and um, there's quite a big medicinal, both flavor differences, but also active compound differences between those two products. So generally you're saying you're, you would be buying a mycelium product. Now, it doesn't have to be like that, and there's brands that sell fruiting body products on capsulated products. I just think that the most important part about medicinal mushrooms is that you consume them on a fairly regular basis. Mm-hmm. So it's a kingdom, fun, the kingdom of fungi in general, that should be as much as your everyday life as good bacteria or dark leafy greens or wild, you know, wild food. It should be like a little bit every day. And in order to maintain that habit, I just don't believe that encapsulated products are a choice for right. people. It just It's just significantly easier to find a way of an actual real food solution that people can do and ideally something they're already doing is a ritual that they don't have to start because building rituals can be really difficult for a lot of people. Yeah. So it's a ritual that you just upgrade kind of like in your case, you have the ritual of coffee and you just, you know, quote unquote, upgrade um, it by adding something in. And obviously, I don't know, how do you think about the flavor? But most people say that they actually don't notice the difference. Yeah, you know what? Honestly, it just tastes like coffee. It doesn't taste any different. Uh, And it's funny because for those of you listening, there's uh, on the package too, when you purchase one of these, you'll notice that it actually has a scale of a mushroomy or shroomy type flavor, right? And even the stronger ones that I've tried from Four Sigmatic, they don't taste any different. I mean, whatsoever. They just taste like coffee. And and plus, with all the things that I add in there from the butter to the coconut oil, I mean, it's really, I mean, I taste absolutely no mushrooms whatsoever. And I have some wild-forged golden chanterelles that I just picked from the forest just a couple days ago that I'm going to eat tonight. But, you know, I can't taste any mushrooms whatsoever in the coffee. That's great. The fats is, is, that's kind of, um, a pro tip a little bit if you want to break down some of those bitter flavors is any kind of a fat it can be butter coconut oil it can even be um, a nut milk i just made a homemade cashew milk which is super mm. super creamy super super creamy that or fresh coconut milk for example they easily break down a lot of a lot of the bitterness of anything so um and that's a great way to start and don't the Adding. lipids, the the lipids or the fats, also help carry some of the constituents deeper, further into our bodies as well, too. It kind of act as like a transport system. Well, it slows down the release of some of these. For example, the polysaccharides. I'm not sure if it increases in the case of medicinal mushrooms if you bought an extract that has already been dual extracted. Mm-hmm. But it is true that lipids do enhance the absorption of the almost extract these constituents out of these mushrooms if they have not been extracted. So in the case of, let's say, you get a fresh a chanterelle, for example, but also let's talk about medicinal mushrooms like maitake. You forged a, a hen of the woods, so maitake. 
And in that case, if you cook it in saute in butter, it actually not only makes it taste better, <laughs> but it also releases a lot of the health properties out of them. So cooking, so adding, applying heat and lipids to a non-extracted mushroom, be it edible or inedible, will unlock its power. But if you've already using a dual extracted product, the product that has gone through this process, then I think it's more related to the fact that it just releases slower in your stomach, but not necessarily further increases the absorption. Now, I have to say one thing that does is vitamin C. So if you make a beverage, um, coffee is a little trickier because the bitters, but um, a little bit of like, let's say, rose hip. I like that you can forage. It's almost, it's almost a weed in a lot of places. So rosehip is a great one that you could add with medicinal mushrooms um, to, and that vitamin C in those berries will enhance the absorption of the medicinal mushrooms. Mm, I haven't actually thought of adding rosehip, so that's a great idea. What exactly is the difference between the fruiting body and the mycelium? What what exactly what what, what does it look like, or typically how how does that work for for most mushrooms? Yeah, there's actually a little bit of a mushroom war going on right now with the mycelium camp versus the fruiting body camp. So I'm trying to be a Switzerland here, and I'm just going <laughs> to give give a little bit of on both sides of what, what do people argue. But uh -huh. let's start with understanding what they are. We kind of discussed that the fruiting body is like the fruit. So if you ever walk in a forest and you see a mushroom, that is the fruiting body. If you go to the grocery store, that is the fruiting body. So from an ancestral health point of view, it's more than likely that that's the only part of the mushroom that has been utilized historically. Now, obviously, you could say that, you know, we we don't do cave paintings anymore. We use an iPhone. So if something is done for a long time, it doesn't mean it's the most optimal way. But it's good to know that that is the ancient way a little bit, how we've used them. Now, the mycelium is like the root system it's like the web so technically wherever you are in the world and you're walking on top of grass or whatever there will be a web of mycelium there and this mycelium is massively important for the environment so it's hugely important for our ecosystem mm -hmm. now what the mycelium does it's think it's like a huge web almost like a spider web underground and it collects energy, has this exchange system with trees and plants and ex exchange nutrients back and forth. And at, at, at the kind of usually, depending on the mushroom, but usually once a year it collects all of its life force to pop these fruits, these fruiting bodies. So it pops them up and there are studies that show that if you collect the mushrooms or you don't collect the mushrooms, the fruiting bodies, which, by the way, technically, if we talk about mushroom, we only talk about fruiting body. But mm -hmm. today, in today's world, we, mushroom has become just like a generic world of all kinds of fungi. But so once we, um, if we collect the fruiting bodies or not, it doesn't have any impact on the ecosystem now. Right. Um, so anyway, so that's how they get formed. And what's the difference is that because it has collected all of its life force and nutrients into this, you know, to the fruiting body. Think of like almost like any animal or any plant, when it wants to reproduce itself, it collects its energy and push into a new form of life, this fruiting body. It has a little bit of more of these polysaccharides. So poly refers to many and saccharides refers to sugars. And obviously now somebody who is in keto is like, hey, hey, hey I can't have sugars. No, these, 
These do not spike your blood sugar. Actually, they balance your blood sugar. And we're talking the portions are so small that you might get half a gram, maybe a gram of carbohydrates. Okay. And in a form that is actually really complex and actually helps helps your body and your um, to simulate amino acids. We can deep dive on that. But polysaccharides are probably the most studied compounds in these medicinal mushrooms as of today. So they might have like three to five times more in the fruiting body that you have in the mycelium. So it just has a higher amount. Now, the bigger issue is that you can't really forage it's, uh, the mycelium. So it's usually grown on a, on a, sus- a substrate, which is usually grains. So Okay, yeah. and I've seen it on sometimes wood chips in uh, yep. facilities where they're growing it outside of nature within an atmospherically controlled temperate climate. I've seen that there's a, been a couple companies where they're doing some pretty amazing things as far as using mushrooms as alternatives to animal fibers. Yeah, the only problem is that actually the wood chips you could grow fruiting bodies in, but if you grow for human consumption mycelium in the wood chips, the problem there is that... Once it's done and the mycelium has spread into that area, you cannot separate the mycelium and the substrate out of the, each other. Mm-hmm. So what they do is they, they just take the whole grain and they grind it, and that's what you're having. So you're oh. having 50 to 70% substrate, and the rest is mycelium. For the sake of simplicity, that. you say it's half grains, half mycelium. And if you do it in a wood ch- chips, you cannot, you, could, you cannot use it for human consumption because that's, that wood chip is not mm. an edible thing for us whereas the grains would be okay. um but from from for other purposes definitely the mycelium will grow anywhere it's naturally just literally loves to grow almost anywhere so you could use it for other purposes because mushrooms definitely have or fungi have definitely a lot of healing properties for other things than just humans but aside from the fruiting body and the fruiting body is going to have a higher concentration of these nutrients and i think you said something very important earlier where it's important for people to understand that picking the fruiting body of a mushroom is as taro said just like picking an apple from a tree it's you're not harming the actual uh fungi which is again like as he says it's in a web or a network underneath the earth and it's pushing that fruiting body up and if you don't pick it, it will get eaten by another animal, parasite, or something else that's going to utilize these type of beneficial compounds. Correct. So if you want to talk about the full life cycle, then the fruiting body will have a spore, which is a seed, and then it will spread, and then there will be more mycelium or hyphae grown that will grow into mycelium. So there's a circle like any animal, plant, fungi also have their circle of life, how they, how they move, but definitely... A um, lot of other mammals. Uh, I was just visiting our farm in. I currently live in California, but I was visiting our farm in Finland, and um, I saw a, a deer eating um, mushrooms, looking for them. So it's other mammals will eat them, and like you said, then insects will uh, finally. You see a lot of rot. Once you go foraging, if you go too late in the season, you'll see a lot of half rotten mushrooms. So. Somebody will have them if you're if not going to have them. It just amazes me that when you go into some of these places, some of the, you know, if you live in an urbanized area, you're, for example, living here in the Bay, I have to go into recreational areas or, you know, as I've heard Daniel Vitale say, recreational areas as in recreating the areas that were natural to humans and to uh, other non-humans alike. But it's funny to me that I know that you can get charged 
for picking the fruiting body of a mushroom up here. Up, You can get a ticket for $1,500 for picking a wild mushroom on forested property. And some of the regulations to eating a wild diet for an individual can sometimes be sometimes daunting, you know, you're not sure whether or not I should pick this, you know, do you know, do I have to hide it or whatever? It's interesting how that works. And in Finland, it's totally different, right? So before this call, we were talking about some of the Finnish forage le legislation that you guys have over there, which is really cool. And something called the everyman rights. Can you maybe speak on that for a little bit? Yeah, it's definitely I'll start with the US side and then explain the difference. Yeah, in, in so I've had crazy incidents like I was eating mulberries in New York City in on the Brooklyn side in a tree and then this park official came and said you're going to die it's like I was like why because <laughs> you don't know what that tree is and what that berry is and I said I actually do I even know it's latin name do you and he oh, got mad at like you oh, have to so get weird. out I'll find you and I was like, okay, whatever. Anyway, I left and came back and got more. But in California, and there is some good reasons for it. So if you are interested, actually Eater Magazine just made a pretty good story on the kind of rare mushroom foraging and mushroom foraging culture, which is not a small thing. You must understand that there's a commercial business and it's a cutthroat business. Another one is Eugenia Boone has a book, um, Mycophilia, that also talks about the culture around these. So in states like California that have this beautiful nature, there is people who commercially are coming to get these mushrooms and it has become a very dangerous where actually people has been killed. I'm not even kidding. Oh, wow. And there is and it's and maybe we can link somewhere some of these stories and people can read about Absolutely. those. Absolutely. I'll link them all in the show notes for you. So it's there's reasons for it and there's in but in California I believe you should be able in state parks you should be able to forge for your own purposes but not for commercial purposes without a permit and I know there's some restrictions with that as well I know in in North Bay I went forging in Big Basin and I believe that was not allowed but I went to the Salt Point mm -hmm. to forage and that was allowed in Sonoma County so so just better to look, and there's usually local mycologist associations who are experts in that state and that area on how you should do, but you should definitely check it out before you go because that might end up in a big fine. And so that's unfortunate. Now in to Finland, it is very, very different. So essentially, we have this rule called every man's right, and it essentially per says that the whole country is for everybody with a couple exceptions. So... How it's related to foraging is that anybody can forage from any place. It's all everybody's food with exceptions that. of what we call the yard area. So if you have a, your house and you have your front yard and you have your apple tree, that mm -hmm. technically is your apple tree. Right. No one's going to walk into your yard and pick your apple straight. Correct. From, okay. But let's let's assume that because that's inhabited, that's warmed area. There's like definitions for it. But if I have on my backyard a piece of forest that I own, anybody can go to that forest and pick anything from the forest. Okay. Awesome. Now what, what you cannot do is cut down trees or hurt trees unless you're in, your life is in danger. So if you, if your boat crashes and you're stranded and you're cold and you need to make fire, you can do that, but not for recreational purposes. So you're not allowed to hurt trees, um, but you are allowed to forage, for example, case of mushrooms and berries anywhere. So for example, our family has quite a lot of forest and it's not uncommon at all 
to see total strangers in our forest picking up food. And in our case, obviously it's a small country with a little over 5 million people, but there is, and estimates vary a lot, but there is literally tens of thousands of tons of rotten berries and mushrooms being left in the forest, which is free food. So for that reason, the government has encouraged people to forage more, not only by with this everyman right, but also that they're tax exempt. So you could, in a small business way, you could even pick them commercially and sell them at the farmer's market and don't have to pay taxes oh, on, again, wow. on a, on a small scale. Now, if you start to have bigger commercial purposes, then there's different rules. But if, if you want to sell to your neighbors baskets of uh, bilberries, which are wild blueberries or lingonberries or cloudberries, that's totally fine. And you don't have to pay taxes. So it could be a nice little side income for somebody. It's also important to note that I think I read somewhere that it's almost one eighth of the population in Finland actually own forests. Yeah, I um I haven't seen the stats lately. I have another that I do remember that we have a little over five hundred thousand saunas, so something like five hundred and fifty thousand saunas for a little over five million people. So that <laughs> wow. gives you an indication as well is that we have people own so. <clears throat> talk about Nordic culture, not just Finnish, but also Swedish, Norwegian, mm-hmm. is that we have these cottages and almost everybody will have a cottage. So if you don't have a cottage, your brother or sister will have a cottage or your uncle will have a cottage. And there's a lot of cottages. And during the summertime, which is short but beautiful, similar to what you would have in, let's say, northern Maine, for example, where okay. or somewhere uh, Vermont. So it's very beautiful, 24 hours of sunlight. People leave cities, which are already very small and very nature-oriented. They leave to to be in these cottages that often don't have running water. So it's very primal. Oh, and okay. so pretty much everybody, every Finnish person has forged in their life. I would say bilberry is probably, bilberry is probably the most common, maybe lingonberry. So those two, and everybody has done it, and you've lived in this cottage that is often very, fairly basic, and you're there from couple weeks to couple months a year. And this is typically in the summer. Yeah, there's people who are really hardcore and love it, and they do it more. Um, but generally speaking, midsummer time, usually after midsummer, which is one of our biggest celebrations, if not with Christmas or Winter equinox, summer equinox, so summer equinox, midsummer. Oh, that's beautiful. So you guys do actually celebrate the equinoxes as well. That's a definite celebrated celestial event. It's the biggest. Oh, that's awesome. And if you wanna, if you wanna tie it into the mushrooms, so if somebody listening is like, "Hey, I came to here to talk about hear about mushrooms or something," well, actually, the story of of Christmas and Santa Claus actually originates from northern Finland, Sweden, Norway, and kind of the Western Russia with the Sami people. So long story, like the story of Santa Claus came to the U.S. through the Dutch. Dutch got it from the Germans. Germans got it from the Russians. Russians took it from the Sami people. So they're like the First Nations, Native American type of people that live in in that northern part of Scandinavia. And, And the story of Santa Claus is actually, Santa Claus was a shaman that would go from a village to village healing people throughout the year. And obviously that's one of the only areas where they have domesticated reindeers as well. So anyway, during winter equinox, which used to be in the old calendar, the same day as Christmas, they would do these ceremonies 
that would involve Amanita muscaria or fly acaricus, which is this red mushroom with white dots. You, the stereotypical you mushroom, right? The one Correct. that you see uh, Mario thought, eating. Yeah. Yeah, Mario eating, which is partly psychedelic, partly toxic. You're, it's not lethal. You're not going to die from it if you dehydrate it correctly or if you use what is called urinotherapy. Now we're going really deep end, but oh, yeah. if you eat it, piss it, drink the piss, probably not anybody's favorite, but let's say call it just dehydrating it really well. You can make a partly psychedelic tea, uh, not to the same like, extent as like psilocybin, but mm-hmm. still something, and they would drink it and see reindeers fly and whatnot. Anyway, the point is that this Yule, which we call Yolu, which is, means Christmas, oh. is this, it, it's exactly, used to be exactly the same day as, as Christmas when winter equinox on the old calendar. Mm-hmm. So that's our one main celebration. And the other main celebration all of Scandinavia is midsummer where we do magic. And a lot of the healing that we would do on herbs and medicine was also tied to these two occasions. So there was a lot of quote unquote magic and herbal healing tied into these two specific times. Oh, I love like, that the that your culture is still so rich in that. I feel like here in America we're we're still so fragmented that we're still from all over the world that we've lost a lot of the traditional heritage that we have today, you know. And I kind of joke with some of my friends at work, you know, like no, we still have a tradition American American tradition. It's called consumerism, <laughs> you know? Like yeah. we we still have that here, but you know, uh, all joking aside, you know, I once read maybe a, a few years ago, maybe it was five years ago or something, that um, Finland was rated one of the happiest countries in the world. And I'm wondering if that's due to the the ancient traditions that you guys have and, and the fact that you're still very much connected to the land. Well, if you say that to any Finnish person, that you are one of the most happiest people in the world, you're probably going to get big laughs because <laughs> the other stereotype is that Finnish people are miserable and there's a lot of depression in Finland. Now, the truth is probably somewhere in between those two, but mm-hmm. there is a stereotype that Finnish people have a lot of, for example, suicides. And this is tied to a huge depression we went through, especially in the early 90s, that really didn't affect others. But our banking system crashed big time. So think of your 1930s-ish US. Mm-hmm. And the country was already poor. It was poor after the Second World War. So most of until the kind of mid-90s, the country has been poor because of war and banking crisis. And so there was a lot of that kind of darkness. And and that caused this reputation that we are suicide rates. Now, the suicide rates are not as high as they used to be. The other issue with when you live that up north, so think of living in Alaska, is that in the wintertime, you're literally only going to get two two hours of sunlight, maybe. So there's not enough vitamin D. There's a lot of seasonal depression. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of the flip side. Now, on the other side, if you look at quality of life, the Nordic countries in general, so Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Iceland even, um, are among the best life quality. So all around, if you think of life, they're really is in a concept of a homeless person or somebody. So, so in that way, overall, so I would say the truth is probably somewhere that Finnish people don't smile as much, but they're very stoic. Mm-hmm. So the ups and downs of life don't affect you that much. You just live your, you just stay on your lane. <laughs> you know, you right. just stay on, on your lane, you live your life. Very basic life is appreciated. So a lot of the basic things in life, the simple things in life are appreciated, such as the summer cottage, the sauna, berries, you know, having salmon, like that kind of things are very. Also, important to note that the Scandinavian countries are 
fairly pagan, not commonly talked about, but these are literally the least religious countries in the world. And, you know, you can call it atheist, but a lot of the traditions we have, like the Midsummer, actually is a very pagan tradition tied to more of the nature's own cycles versus some other story that we got from another country. So a lot of our traditions, even though a lot of my generation doesn't even realize that they're pagan traditions, they are, and they're often tied to some kind of a natural cycle. And just living closer to nature probably helps. And also the tough elements, the tough seasons, it's very grounding and humbling to have like few months of no sun and five degrees. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm no. sure. Yeah. Yeah. So getting back to the mushrooms, how exactly, uh, well, obviously you were exposed probably at a very young age, but how did you move into discovering this rare form of mushroom, which I believe you say is a, a matsutake? And how did going into finding this matsutake develop into this now very lucrative and amazing company that I'm I'm fascinated with, which is Four Sigmatic. Yeah, so I grew up foraging mostly edible mushrooms. So if we define those two really quickly, edible mushrooms or culinary mushrooms have some protein and fiber to them, and then they they grow often on the ground, and they're more foody culinary purposes. And then there's these medicinal mushrooms that I'm now focused on that grow on trees that have more of these healing benefits. So those are two different. Now, I grew up more in the culinary edible mushrooms. So that's your chanterelles, that would be your morels and all that stuff. Mm, now, I didn't, th I didn't think much of it. As a kid, you love sweet things like anybody else. So I was always more into wild raspberries, wild strawberries, bilberries. Like that was the, that what I loved. And then by total accident with a college friend, we were bored uh, when we were undergrads and and we were just bored in a class and we started, you know, uh, shooting the shit essentially. And uh, his mom was working at this um, forest institute in this area and we were talking how similar it is to an ecosystem in Hokkaido. And somewhere through that rabbit hole, getting into talk about mushrooms and this particular mushroom, which is a little bit like the, the truffle for the Japanese. And it, there's a couple of varieties. There's a North American variety that we've known for a long time that is less valuable than the Japanese variety. And now it comes to the DNA part where it gets a little complex. But at that point, the ecosystem of Hokkaido, which is the northern, the northern island of Japan, um, is so similar to where I grew up. We were living now in the second biggest city in Finland. But where me and my college friend grew up had this one forest that had exactly the same kind of uh, pine background is Hokkaido and through that we just kind of like as a half joke went through that rabbit hole and discovered it so it was not like we were like looking for it it started as a thesis as a joke and it evolved into reality so I would that's why I say it's 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 it was not deliberate it was accidental but to the point of to four sigmatic that kind of, I, I learned so much more about mushrooms at that point. And then um, eventually went to travel the world and got into more and more of the superfoods and understanding that every culture I traveled to had their own big superfood. Like in Finland, it's rhodiola, nettle, chaga. Whereas if you go to, you know, 
Russia, it is slightly different. If you go to Amazon, it's Brazil, it's slightly different. If you go to, you know, Southern Africa, it's like, oh, we have this Yohimbe here. And like every culture would have their favorite herbs. Like I live in the Philippines and they would have Malungai, which is Moringa. And they would just, that would be a big thing for them. So just understanding that every culture had these highly valued, quote unquote, superfoods, which is a silly word, but just the best I can come up with right now. So these superfoods, and I got fascinated with that and I and wanted to start a company around that. And we had these few verticals. And as we were starting the company, we kind of quickly realized that it's the mushrooms are the underrepresented ones. And because I had this prior understanding of mushrooms, with our friends, it just gradually went to the point is that we're repping them versus some other superfood. So we still use things like adaptogens that we can talk about yeah. and other well-studied. So the company name Four Sigmatic tries to refer to that we only focus on the 50 most researched foods in the world. And a lot of the most researched foods in the world are fungi, but we also try to popularize some other ones, um, berries and roots and shoots and whatnot. But that's kind of how we got to them. And, uh, for me, it was important that the mushrooms give you these noticeable results that I would get from not a lot of herbal remedies give you noticeable results. But when, when I took cordyceps and later reishi, I would really, really feel it. So cordyceps was maybe my first love in the medicinal mushroom category. Oh, okay. And you know, for as far as cordyceps, I think it's interesting for people to understand what or you know what? I'm sure a lot of people have actually seen what a cordyceps mushroom looks like from a very popular or viral video that they probably saw somewhere on National Geographic where one of these fruiting bodies releases a spore into the air and it catches onto an ant. And this ant somehow starts wandering its way up to the side of a tree and out to the farthest limb of a branch. And it just stops at the end of this branch. And then before you know it, there is a small little it's it's a fruiting body of a mushroom, but it's coming out of the center of its head and it's fruiting out of the carcass of the ant. And that is one of the mushrooms, cordyceps, that I believe the Chinese used actually as a special type of performance enhancing medicinal mushroom in one of the Olympics. I can't remember exactly, but it was to help with util utilization of oxygen so that their endurance runners could run record breaking speeds, which I think they actually did. But maybe you want to speak a little bit uh, about, well, maybe not about cordyceps. You know what? I'm actually more interested in seeing as how we've spoken a lot about mushrooms at this point, but adaptogens. You, you mentioned adaptogenic herbs, too. For people who aren't very familiar with that, what are adaptogenic herbs? So adaptogens or adaptogenic herbs are a small group of things that in the thesis there is that they help your body to adapt to stressors. So it's... When we started to talk about them, we realized that the word adaptogen is fairly new. It comes roughly from the 60s. It has a Russian heritage. O original study was actually on a synthetic drug, but quickly came into natural solutions. Mm. And the problem they tried to solve was the fact that for soldiers predominantly and for the army is that like, if they were in battle or in a tough situation, rather than taking amphetamine or something else, that would boost your performance, but will give you a major letdown or an addiction a um, few days later, what would give you energy without stimulation? So they were looking at things that could give boost performance without the downsides. So the difference between a stimulant and an adaptogen is based on the, th the theory that you could have something that will boost your performance, maybe not 
as much as the amphetamine or stimulant, but it would give you boost performance and but without the letdown. So that caught this Dr. Lazarov to study these and quickly realized that there is a group, again, from every culture we can find one or two adaptogens, that there is a group of maybe 10, maybe 20 things that have this potential of ability to modulate modulate your mostly your hormones or your glands that produce hormones. So the first or five original ones that they studied, partly because of geographic reasons, were Eulathero, Panax ginseng, goji, shisandra, and rhodiola rosea. So these are mostly roots and two berries, so three roots and berries that have this ability to modulate. Now, to be an adaptogen, there's few criteria that they define that you must have. First of all, it needs to be t- non-toxic. So that means that it, it has to be quote-unquote tonic. So it cannot be a food that you have to cycle. So for example, let's say dandelion. Dandelion is a seasonal food. It's a great food. I love dandelion, but you shouldn't eat dandelion 12 months of the year. It's definitely something you would cycle in and out. So um, Chinese call these like emperor herbs, so things that both heal and prevent, whereas most herbs only fall into one or the other category. You take them when you're sick or you take them seasonally to prevent from getting sick. But these ones could do both. So first one, non-toxic. Second one is non-specific, which is sometimes a little bit hard to understand, but it's mm-hmm. this mod- concept of modulation or regulation of ability to both be almost work as a stimulant and a sedative same time, depending which one you need. So you could take it first thing in the morning and last thing in the night. And in theory, it should be the same thing, should be able to give you energy in the morning and help you sleep deeper in the evening, which is a little bit hard to explain. That how was, something, that was yeah. the hardest thing for me to explain to most people when they came in and I try to recommend rhodiola or ashwagandha or any of these other adaptogenic herbs was that exact process was... How exactly do they know to modulate stress or give energy? That was the biggest question that I got from when when I was trying to offer those type of herbs to other people. What what exactly do you say to other people regarding that? Well, I just talk about how they don't actually do it. They just give – they have like fuel that is good for blood circulation and they have like fuel that is good for, like I said, our glands. So I try to talk about with this concept of a car – fuel and that through that instead of you know trying to go into the science route is trying to give some kind of an anecdote but in this case if your hormones work well or your glands work well and your hormones are balanced then naturally you should have energy in the morning because of your circadian rhythm and you should naturally have be calm in the evening Mm -hmm. um also i want to kind of underline a thing that a little bit annoys me sometimes people understand that like it's actually good to be non-stressed and calm if you want to get work done. Like it's actually useful in the morning to be calm and relaxed, sometimes for focus. So you don't have to be in fight or flight situation to get stuff done. So actually some of the more relaxing and calming adaptogens such as Rishi and Ashwagandha actually can help with cognitive function a lot. So that's also good to understand, but... Okay, that's good to know. I mean, that's probably why a handful of high-performance entrepreneurs that I know practice breath work first thing in the morning. Yep. So if we wanted to go into the forest and we want to forge our own mushrooms, how would you 
tell somebody who's just interested, they hear, hear you talking about mushrooms and the medicinal benefits. Maybe they don't have the money to be buying the coffee right now, but they're interested in going to learn how to forge these mushrooms for themselves. How would you, how would you say they go about doing that? Well, first of all, I would say that um, which one is more costly, being sick or <laughs> or getting these mushrooms? And I I'm not saying you have time. to. Yep. I don't have to buy. You don't have to buy from my company or anything or anybody else. But you can even just buy the crude mushrooms and then do it yourself. But I'm just saying is which one is more costly? Very true. Anyway, anyway, back to the to answer is um, one common issue that I see is people panic because they don't have all the answers. Mm -hmm. And this is not just in the form of natural health, but with anything, they stop taking action because they don't know everything. And I literally know 2%, maybe I'll probably go down 1% of, of fungi. Like after over a decade of working with them, I literally know like 1% of everything that there is. There's literally like about 1.5 million mushrooms that we've discovered less than, you know, way less than 10% of them. Like maybe like few tens of thousands of fungi we've recognized. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows all the mushrooms. And those were constantly learning more and, and more and more research is coming. evolving too, right? Like names of mushrooms, different categories oh. through DNA testing. Everything is constantly evolving and changing, right? Well, case of cordyceps, I I think it changed names like a few times just the time that I've studied it. <laughs> so like like constantly learning more and we're understanding more. And a lot of people dedicate their whole life for one category of mushrooms alone and they still don't know. But a lot of people panic. It's like, hey, I don't know all these fungi, so I can't take action. So that's kind of the mindset challenge. I, I don't know everything about being an entrepreneur. I can't start a company. Hey, I don't know everything about you know, running or weightlifting. So I can't exercise. Oh, like that's exactly that's how a, I felt starting the podcast. You know, Oh my gosh, yeah. I don't know how to do a podcast. What am I going to do? <laughs> I actually saw a uh, funny somehow through the rabbit hole of YouTube. I saw some first Joe Rogan um, podcasts that back in the day and the quality was like, just unbelievably like, I don't want to say bad, but I would say like it's improved significantly. So if, <laughs> but it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> if you just keep doing it, you're going to get good. So, Anyway, to the mushroom point is that instead of thinking that you have to know everything, think of it like levels. Think of it like levels that what do you need to know in each level to get, to be able to get value out of it. How many levels so, would you say there are? Well, there is, I guess there's unlimited levels. And when you reach the last level, there's another level. But I would say <laughs> yeah. to, I'm just going to simplify it and give you three levels that okay, are very perfect. attainable for everybody. So the first level is just going to the forest, enjoying nature, breathing the good air, and just being there. And the easiest way to do that is go with somebody who has foraged mushrooms before. So your local mycologist or your fungi friend, and not having a target of finding something, just having a target of going there and discovering. And in that case, you don't have to worry about the poisonous mushrooms or the lethal mushrooms. So you really don't have to think that because you don't have a goal of getting anything. Your goal is just to be there and learn and listen and see. Now, in the next level, if you want to go by yourself, there's only literally like with, with your both hands, you can calculate the lethal mushrooms. So you can start with the fact of instead of trying to learn 1.5 million mushrooms or 1,000 mushrooms or even 50 mushrooms, you try to learn you know the five in your area that are lethal and poisonous and learning their lookalikes. And 
that's it. And those are well documented. The lethal mushrooms are super well documented. So you can narrow it down. So understanding the death caps and those, mm -hmm. just, just learning those. And that gives you already an indication that if it's not one of those, let's say five to 10 lethal ones, you can bring it home and then further study it when you bring it home. And you can always bring it home and not eat it. That's not a bad thing either. So you just do that, bring it home, go online, internet. We actually have a shroom club at Four Sigmatic. So um, a Facebook group just where people just share photos and recipes and whatnot. So even there you could post it like, hey, does anybody know which this fungi is once you brought it home, as long as you've confirmed that it's not one of those five to 10 that are toxic. And then finally, um, if once you get want to get into the medicinal mushrooms, you kind of quickly realize that the lily isn't really um, poisonous tree mushrooms. The, all the poisonous mushrooms are growing on the ground. So you can actually pretty safely forage mushrooms from the trees, versus you got to be a lot more careful when you forage them from the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, we started this Mushroom Academy, um, depending on when this will air, we've had one or two courses available, but we're essentially educating people on the one-on-one -on, -one on fungi, free online e-learning course. So no money or credit card needed. You can just go and learn to well, just answer awesome. a lot of a lot of these questions that we always get. So instead of answering them 15,000 times, we made a online e-learning course. So hopefully that will get you into the next phase um, of foraging. And obviously listening to podcasts like yours and just being curious will get, gradually get you to the next level. You know, the first thing I did was I actually paid money to become a member of the Fungus Federation of Santa Cruz. I live here in San Jose and the Santa Cruz Mountains are my backyard. So I paid money. I made sure it was on $20, guys. It's not a it's not a huge investment or anything like that, but at least you put a little money forward so that you feel a little bit more obligated than a free Facebook group. And on top of that, I went to events and I met people face to face. I got numbers. And as soon as I did that, I invited them out because I'm curious. I want to know exactly what's in my backyard. I want to know what I can eat, what I can forge, because I have this goal of mine. It's very similar. I follow my friend Daniel Vitalis and Arthur Haynes, their 80-20 principle of 80% wild foods, 20% from local CSAs or your farmer's markets. Um, I'm still working on that. But again, the first thing I did was become familiar with the people who were already knowledgeable in that area. It's not as difficult as people like to think that it is. No, and especially because we have that luxury of we will not be starving. <laughs> so getting macronutrients, getting micronutrients from foraging is pretty easy. You can get very medicinal things once you start it up, but it's pretty hard to get macronutrients from nature. But we have the luxury that we don't have to. We can still go into the farmer's market and buy potatoes, you know? So it's not the end of the world. But in our case, we can have this luxury of going there without an urge to actually find something in the beginning. And then the more you go, the more you'll find. And and also, like you said about the chanterelles that you found, those are really expensive in the store. So actually yeah. what you're getting is you're eating like Michelin star quality food for free pretty much the cost of gas and a little bit of time so you can also have a more culinary rich lifestyle by just learning to go there and finding some of this stuff and obviously you live in an area that is world-class like absolutely world-class so uh, it's probably the i'm so i had no idea even before moving here but yeah apparently the santa cruz mountains is some of the most fertile land for fungi in the world and 
you know, I'm very blessed. I'm very happy that I'm here and that I have the opportunity to learn from just people who are just so incredibly, incredibly smart and dedicated to learning more about this lifestyle. So a great thing, guys, is that you can go outside and if you see somebody else forging for mushrooms, chat them up, become friends, meet another person. Likely they're into the exact same thing you are if they're foraging for mushrooms. So um, go out there and do that. That's that's really important. And in wrapping today up, I want to thank you for your time. For people who are more interested in learning about Four Sigmatic, uh, the coffee, maybe more about the projects that you've been up to, where would you like us to send people to get to know more about you and, and what you got going on? Yeah, it's Four Sigmatic and pretty much all the social channels and foursigmatic.com. So F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com. So for Sigmatic and all those and just, you know, join the crew. There's um, there's actually now, we're blessed, we have probably in, in the Facebook group as well, we have people that are already more knowledgeable than than we are on, on some things on fungi. So it's a great place and it's only been for a few months and it's growing pretty quickly. So that might be a fun place and, and maybe in the show notes we can link up some some stuff as well. But um, yeah, the Mushroom Academy at foursigmatic.com, social channels, Instagram, whatnot. Those are probably the best ways to get involved. You know what? I'm totally going to throw it out there because I have you on. Is there any way, maybe sometime in the future, we could hook up the audience with a discount code, something like that, to where maybe on their first purchase they might be able to try one of the Four Sigmatic products out? Because I just want them to know that this is pretty much one of the only coffees that I drink. And actually, it is the only coffee that I drink. And then when I can, i got to go run to the store and pick up something that I'm not too proud of. And how I do it, guys, is I usually have their Chaga and Lion's Mane product in the morning, and then at night I actually use their Reishi Elixir just to kind of mellow out and chill out before I go to bed. So just in case anybody was wondering. but if- Yeah, well, uh, we'll we'll put it on the show notes. I will make a code for you specifically after this. So, yeah, you definitely guys will get a discount so you get a, you can get to try it. And, and if you're not happy, just contact us and we'll refund you. So well, I feel pretty good about it what we've done. And if you're not happy, we'll get your money back. I'm pretty sure you guys will be pretty happy. It's tasty. I mean, especially that reishi elixir. It's got um, star anise and some cinnamon, I think, in there. It just tastes really, really good. Thank you so much for sharing some of your time and ancestral wisdom with us today, Tara. Thanks, James. And thanks, guys, for listening. Hey guys, ready for that 10% discount code Tarot promised us at the end of today's episode? Well, get your pen and paper ready, okay? Got it? Here it is. Head over to foursigmatic.com and at checkout on the right-hand side, you'll see a space to type in your very unique one-of-a-kind promotional code, Ancestral, for 10% off your first order of shroom products guaranteed to impress a first-time medicinal mushroom user. Again, that's foursigmatic.com, discount code A-N-C-E-S-T-R-A-L. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, then do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating and review of the show. This helps improve the show's ranking and visibility with other would-be hunter-gatherer gardeners just like yourself. But if you can't do that, I'll totally understand. We're still cool. 
But maybe you could share this episode on your favorite social media network, or at the very least, continue the conversation with myself and the tribe on the official Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But whatever you do, remember to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at ancestralhealthradio.com. Yeah.